0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
0: Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, I'm Trevor Cully and this is episode 113, Alexander, King of the Monsters. Last time, we followed along as Alexander the Great, Lord of all Asia, and King of Macedon hunted Darius III following the Achaemenid king's flight from Ecbatana. Unfortunately for Darius, not all of his nobles were able to keep faith in their monarch. Bessus, a cousin from a cadet branch of the Achaemenid line and satrap of Bactria, arranged a coup, hoping to take Darius prisoner as a bargaining chip. But Alexander caught up with them in a surprise attack. Trying to make an effective getaway, Bessus and his comrades, Barsaentes of Drangiana and Nabarzanes of Hyrcania, killed Darius III. Alexander, always one to hold royalty in the highest regard, was outraged by this regicide. Bessus declared himself King Artaxerxes V, and fled to Bactria as Alexander worked his way through the eastern provinces, Parthia, Hyrcania, Margiana, Aria, Drangiana, Aracosia, they all fell before the Macedonian advance. A plot to kill and usurp Alexander, masterminded by his father's old friend Parmenion and his son Philotas, played out in the Macedonian camp, but Alexander was informed of the treason and executed many of his own nobles. When the invaders arrived in Bactria, Artaxerxes V and his followers fled further into the steppe to Sogdiana, only for those nobles, Spitamenes, Oxiartes, and Datafernes, to flip the table. They delivered a dethroned Bessus to Alexander, along with the northern satrapies. Humiliated and beaten, Bessus was sent back to the city of Bactra for execution ending the Achaemenid dynasty once and for all. This was now Alexander's empire, to be ruled forever after by the Argiad dynasty. Well, God knows we need a bit of a narrative break. The last nine episodes aren't the longest narrative streak in the series, but it's up there, and nine episodes of warfare and battle stories is both exhausting to write and to listen to. Plus, if we just keep going with Alexander, we are hardly done with war stories. Fortunately, we've got a bit of a tradition on this show that I will keep going. We've killed off three kings since the last time I talked about religion, so I think we are a bit overdue. But we are also entering a new era, where we're A, going to burn through kings a lot faster, and B, going to need a place for some kind of new episode format. So the next three episodes are going to be two on religion, and then the new one. So, Alexander, King of the Monsters. What exactly does that have to do with religion, aside from riffing on Godzilla? Well, as it happens, Alexander is a major religious figure in Zoroastrianism, just uh, not in a good way. And supposedly that part of the story has been playing out in the background of all of this warfare, at least since Galgamela. The tricky thing in all of this is that there, quite simply, isn't much evidence for it. Of course, we really don't have much contemporary evidence for Alexander's life on any side of things, but the Greco-Roman sources at least cite contemporaries and reference things with archaeological support. The Zoroastrian and Persian sources are even later and make claims that, if true, are very strangely omitted from the Western record, and not generally the sort of thing that would even have archaeological proof. To find this information, we turn to the written records of the Sassanid Persian Empire from the 3rd to 7th centuries CE, 600-plus years after Alexander, and to the medieval Zoroastrian literature from a few centuries after that. By the 3rd century CE, Zoroastrian tradition held Alexander as the destroyer of their religion, called Iskandar in Middle Persian. And by the 8th century, Persianate literature primarily knew him as Gizestag Iskandar i Ramiag, the accursed Alexander of Rome. By then, as far as the Iranians were concerned, the West and Rome were synonymous. However, they had also largely forgotten the history and even existence of the Achaemenids. A variation of the same tradition appears in the Shahnameh, the Iranian national epic, but with a much more flattering tradition that actually makes Eskandar a cousin of Dara II who is roughly an equivalent to Darius III. I will talk more about some of that next time, but for now, I want to wrap up the story of Alexander's conquest of the Empire. I'm going to go through what we know in detail here, but if you're looking for a more concise version of the Zoroastrian tradition on Alexander... I presented it as a monster story for the Agoraphobia series with the Agora Podcast Network last year. I will stick a link to that down in the show notes. The earliest document we know of in this later Alexandrian tradition is the Letter of Tansar, written by one of the leading Zoroastrian priests, a Mobed, it's primarily an appeal to a petty king in Tabaristan to support Ardashir I, founder of the Sassanid dynasty. Much of the appeal is rooted in Ardashir's devotion. As a result, it includes many interesting bits of information about Zoroastrianism in the 3rd century CE, but for our purposes, this is what it says about Alexander. "...if your concern is for religious matters, and you deny that any justification is found in religion, know that Alexander burnt the book of our religion, twelve hundred Oxhides hides, at Istakir. One third of it was known by heart and survived, but even that was all legends and traditions. And men knew not the laws and ordinances, until, through the corruption of the people of the day and the decay of royal power and the craving for what was new and counterfeit and the desire for vainglory, even those legends and traditions dropped out of common recollection. So that not an iota of truth of that book remained. Therefore, the faith must needs be restored by a man of true and upright judgment. Yet have you heard tell or seen... Any monarch save the king of kings, Ardashir in this case, who has taken this task upon him, with the vanishing of religion you have lost all the knowledge of genealogies and histories and lives of great men which you have let pass from memory. Some of it you have recorded in books, some upon stones and walls, until none of you remembers what happened in the days of his father. How then can you recall the affairs of the people at large, and the lives of kings and above all the knowledge of religion, which ends only with the end of the world? In the beginning of time, men enjoyed a perfect understanding of the knowledge of religion, and sure steadfastness. So just in this section, you have a couple of different bits of the Sassanid-Alexander narrative already at play, most notably that he burned the Avesta collected by Darius III, or rather, Dara II, which I discussed in episode 104. This is one of the most consistent parts of the Middle Persian Alexander story. His greatest crime, at least in the eyes of the faith, was the destruction of the Avesta. As I said in episode 104, this also provides an interesting and convenient explanation for the lack of linguistic evidence for an Achaemenid-era Avesta. If, as tradition goes, the Achaemenid Avesta was written down and destroyed within a generation, possibly with only one copy ever made, it probably would not have a linguistic impact. Also interesting to note that Tansar associated Dara and Alexander's destruction with Istaker, by then a Sassanid capital, but just a minor fort guarding Persepolis in the actual Achaemenid period. Still, it was the nearest city of note to the actual Persian capital of Alexander's time. However, by the 3rd century, the ruins of Persepolis were already known as Takta jamshid the throne of the legendary first king of men, Jamshid, known as Yima in the Avesta. Of course, the Avesta was still known in the Sassanid period, which is when the version that survives today was finally written down but they believed that two-thirds of the original corpus was lost. Frankly, that may even be an underestimate. All things considered, the Avesta is remarkably small for being all religious compositions in a whole language. However, Mobed-Tansar did not attribute this solely to Alexander destroying the written forms. He also blames his own people's forgetfulness. He acknowledges that the tradition was largely passed on in oral form and attributes rising literacy to a lack of dedication to the oral tradition. He also blames the fact that this literacy came in the form of new writing systems for the loss of understanding of stone inscriptions, presumably referring to the old Achaemenid and Elamite cuneiform, Which Tansar seemed to believe were religious in nature. But ultimately, the disruption of Zoroastrian memory is still traced back to Alexander. The letter continues When Alexander had taken the field in the region of the West and the Greek realms, an event too famous to need recounting, and had received the submission of the Copts and Berbers and Jews, Then he led his army from there into Iran and joined battle with Dara. A band of Dara's own nobles used guile and treachery to behead him and brought the head to Alexander, who commanded that those men be nailed to trees as targets and used as butts for his arrows, this being the manner of Greek justice. And he proclaimed it, This is the reward for him who dares to kill a king. Here, Mobed Tansar recounts what the Persians remembered about Alexander's conquest 600 years after the fact. However, he focuses it around people and terminology prominent in his own day, notably emphasizing the Jews despite their relatively minor role in Alexander's campaigns. However, despite all Alexander's perceived crimes, Tansar still credits him with a different ahistorical virtue, at least in the eyes of staunch supporters of Ardashir Shahanshah, the King of Kings. Alexander is credited with punishing the conspirators against Dara. In reality, Alexander only really seems to have pressed this wrath towards Bessus, while the others, like Barciantes, were simply killed in battle, and Nabarzanes was welcomed into the Macedonian court. When I was applying to grad school, In just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. At the other end of this tradition, we have the Arda Viraz Namag, the Book of Righteous Viraz, which functions as a sort of Iranian Dante's Inferno written between 800 and 1000 CE. Discussing Alexander, it says, They say that once upon a time the pious Zartoshed, made the religion which he had received current in the world. Until the completion of three hundred years, the religion was in purity, and men were without doubts. This dips into another aspect of the later tradition, compression of the timeline. In addition to largely forgetting the details of Achaemenid history, Zoroastrian records brought Zoroaster, Zartosht in Middle Persian, forward in their view of history. By the end of the Sassanid period, they believed that Zoroaster lived just over 300 years before Alexander, which is off by about 600 years. This has a lot to do with both loss of records and the development of an idea of cyclical time and apocalyptic millenarian Zoroastrian theology. Again, this is all stuff to discuss at a later date as it becomes more relevant. So the book continues, "...but afterward the accursed evil spirit, the wicked one, in order to make men doubtful of this religion instigated the accursed Alexander the Roman who was dwelling in Egypt so that he came to the country of Iran with severe cruelty and war and devastation. He also slew the ruler of Iran and destroyed the metropolis of the empire and made them desolate. And this religion, namely all the Avesta and its commentaries, written and prepared upon cowskins with gold ink, was deposited in the archives in Stakhir papakan and the hostility of the evil-destined wicked Ashamak, the evildoer, brought onward Alexander the Roman, who was dwelling in Egypt, and he burned them up. And he killed several Dostors and Judges and Herbads and Mobads and upholders of the religion and the competent and wise of the country of Iran. And he cast hatred and strife one with the other amongst the nobles and householders of the country of Iran. And self-destroyed, he fled to hell. And after that... There was confusion and contention among the people of the country of Iran, one with the other. And so they had no lord, nor ruler, nor chieftain, nor dostor who was acquainted with the religion, and they were doubtful in regard to God. And religions of many kinds and different fashions of belief and skepticism and various codes of law were promulgated in the world." Here, we have some of the same stories brought up by Tansar, but also several new additions, particularly relevant to developments in later Sassanid history. Once again, we have the destruction of the ridden Avesta, the setting of Istakher, the destruction of the Persian Empire, the loss of good religion, and a concern with events only after the invaders conquered Egypt. However, the Art of also adds some information to the narrative. Some is just interesting commentary, like saying that the diva Ashamach, or Ashamalg the Tempter, spurred on Alexander's actions. By this time, the epithet Alexander the Roman was well established, as I mentioned earlier. It also adds an extra layer to his religious destruction, claiming that he killed the Dastors, religious scholars and judges, Herbeds, religious teachers, and the Mobeds, the Magi or priests. This is a less inwardly hostile explanation for the loss of oral tradition, where Tansar attributes it to a failing of the Iranians themselves, the Ardoviraz, Attributes it to the death of the religious elite, which also reflects the fact that by this time, the Sassanids had already centralized Zoroastrian religion and fallen to Arab Islam when the book was written. Of all the Zoroastrian traditions about Alexander, this is the one that is most surprising if true. The Greco-Roman sources do not shy away from Alexander's wanton brutality after Galgamela and openly acknowledge that he targeted the Brahmin religious caste in India. There's no clear reason for them to neglect to mention a similar purge in Iran. On top of that, the Ardaviraz Namag also makes an accusation about Alexander that is simply untrue to real history or at least not as directly true as the Middle Persian literature makes it out. Alexander is accused of killing all of the competent and wise leaders of the country, intentionally casting strife between the nobility before fleeing into hell like a diva himself. This, according to the Art of Viraz, led to years of confusion and conflict as all the peoples and leaders of Iran contended with one another. That is not an illegitimate view of history between Alexander's death and Ardashir's rise to power. However, we know and have bountiful evidence of Alexander preserving competent and accomplished Iranian leaders who were willing to serve him. Many remained satraps and governors or were shifted to fill vacancies left by the Darius loyalists. Several even went on to remain independent and lead competitive kingdoms of their own. Once again, all in due time. Finally, the Art of Mag discusses the religious consequences of Alexander's destruction, attributing it as the cause of Zoroastrianism's decline in subsequent centuries, and the rise of new religions in Iran. Now, it's true that other religions did begin to spread among the Iranians soon after Alexander, notably various polytheistic cults from Greece and Mesopotamia, but also Buddhism. However, as we'll see in other texts, the early medieval Zoroastrians often had other faiths in mind, namely Christianity, Manichaeism, and by this book's time, Islam. Remember, the empire Zoroastrian Alexander destroyed was not really the Achaemenids, but rather the legendary Chaonians who included Vishtaspa, or Goshtasp, the patron of Zoroaster himself. Despite the reality of the Achaemenids being religiously flexible, later Iranian tradition held that the Kayanians oversaw an era of religious purity. Thus their fall heralded the decline and the rise of competing doctrines. Much of this information is also reflected in a brief summary from the Bundahishan, composed gradually between the 7th and 9th centuries CE. The same quote is also seen in its larger edition, the Greater Bundahishan, which includes additional information seemingly composed as late as the 13th century, which reads... Then, during the reign of Dara, the son of Dara, the Emperor Iskander came to Shar, Hailing from Arum, he killed King Dara, destroying the families of rulers, magi, and public men of Iranshar, extinguished an immense number of sacred fires, seized the commentary of the revelation of Mazda worship, and sent it to Arum burned the Avesta and divided Iran Iranshar among 90 petty rulers. The only notable detail, besides assigning largely arbitrary numbers to Alexander's successors, is that the Bundahishan also accuses Alexander of extinguishing sacred fires, where the faithful performed their worship. This is almost certainly true, if not how the authors of the bundahitian would have pictured it. The structures and precepts that would eventually be institutionalized as Zoroastrian fire temples were just starting to develop in the later Achaemenid period. But fire altars of varying designs do appear at Achaemenid sites and in Achaemenid artwork. As many of these places and shrines were looted, destroyed, or abandoned under Alexander's auspices, the sacred fires probably were put out improperly. However, early Zoroastrianism may not have had quite as strict a prohibition on this, as the Vendidad includes laws for how to properly extinguish a sacred flame. The Denkard, a religious commentary from the 7th to 8th century CE, provides more of the negative Iranian Alexander tradition than anything else even though two of the eight books are completely lost today. Book five includes the passage, Be it known that he, the prophet Zartosht, had predicted with full details and in concatenation all the circumstances as to how, about the events which would happen in successive ages, about the doers of harm to his religion, such as Alexander, about Malchus, the perverter of the high order of intelligence, about Zahak, about men and women who believe in the faiths of the other evil workers, Jesus and Mani. Aside from giving Zoroaster a more prophetic sort of prophecy than most other Zoroastrian works, this gives us a sense of where Alexander sat in the Zoroastrian hierarchy of evil. He is listed first before the literal diva Malchus, before Zahak, the evil king touched by Ariman, that is, Ongramainu himself, and they are all associated with the rise of other faiths attempting to supplant Zoroastrianism. In this case, it's Christianity via Jesus and Manichaeism via its prophet Mani. Books 7 and 8 of the Dencard include the longest passages on Alexander, but I'm not going to read those in full, mostly because it doesn't contain any new information for this episode besides nuances of late Sassanid and early medieval Zoroastrianism that we don't need to deal with today. However, I do want to discuss one last Middle Persian text that has not gained as much traction or widespread information as the others I've talked about. This is primarily because the document in question is a fragment of parchment from the Sassanid period that managed to survive even as its keepers fled the Arab occupation in the 7th century, and came to rest in a Parsi Zoroastrian library in Mumbai. Few scholars have ever gotten a chance to study the physical document, and the text itself is badly damaged. Fortunately, it was at least translated in the 1930s by W.B. Henning, and it is included in Mary Boyce's History of Zoroastrianism, Volume 3. The phrase Gizistag Iskandar, that is, the accursed Alexander, is legible, and beneath that it reads, He seized and slew those who went in the garments of the Mobeds. A Nask, that is, a book of the Avesta, would be learnt completely by heart, sometimes by women, sometimes by a child, and in that way, indeed, the faith was restored in Sistan re-established and brought afresh into order. Except in Sistan, in other places, there was no recollection. Once again, we do have the tradition that Alexander killed the Magi, or anyone who even looked like a priest in this case. However, this version does not seem to reflect the story of Dara II's written Avesta, instead attributing everything to the loss of the priesthood. This is at least more historically plausible, even if the better-known tradition isn't entirely impossible. More importantly, it describes how women and children memorized as much of the Avesta as they could, quite likely a process of mothers teaching their offspring to memorize the oral tradition, and that a few educated people who had memorized these verses fled to Sistan. Sistan is the later name for the region the Achaemenids called Drangiana. And wouldn't you know, we know for a fact that a significant Achaemenid contingent fled to Drangiana, and that Alexander didn't spend very much time consolidating power there before moving on to hunt Artaxerxes V. Assuming Alexander's conquest did deal a significant blow to oral tradition through a massacre of the priesthood, this is a realistic explanation. The refugee magi hid out in the more isolated and to the Macedonians uninteresting parts of the empire to rebuild their understanding of the Avesta. This view of things is also consistent with the grammatical issues seen in the Vendidod whenever I bring up that book. It's seemingly bits of oral tradition reconstructed into a single work by people who didn't have a firm grasp on a vest grammar, the exact sort of end product you would expect from a situation like the one described in this text. At the end of the day, it is hard to know what to make of these later Zoroastrian memories of Alexander. Obviously, the Macedonian monarch did significant damage to Iranian political power. You can't really debate that. However, without any external evidence for most of the other claims made by these religious sources, it is difficult to believe them. The advent of the millenarian timeline makes many of them even harder to take seriously from a historical point of view. And yet, we know that much had been lost by the Sassanid era. We know that even then they saw the Avesta as fragmented and missing components. And we know that there must have been more Gothas and Yashts at some point, simply because the small number of surviving examples don't make sense for their genres. There is almost certainly some element of truth within many or even all of the stories about Alexander in the Zoroastrian tradition, but which stories is all but impossible to say. Next time, I will dive deeper into the religious tradition of myth and legend that eventually replaced the Achaemenids in popular Iranian understanding of history for about 2,000 years. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to The History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.